pray again. Lord, thank you again for our time together now as we look into your word. I pray that you will direct our hearts to Christ, our Lord and our Savior. He is the one that we live for because he is the one who died for us. We ask that you will take this truth, that you will permeate our hearts with it, that you will conform us more to the image of Christ as a result of our time together this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Titus. I was looking back as I uh, began uh, studying this, this book again and realized that I think the last time we were in Titus was October. Time really just kind of flies by. It's hard to even believe. Hopefully you had a great holiday season. Hopefully uh, you're excited to get uh, back into this book. And as I you know, laid out the rest of the passages for our time in Titus, I realized that mid-spring we will be finished with Titus. A very uh, short book, but um, hopefully it'll all, uh, it'll all come together and um, we will be encouraged and challenged as we continue to, to work through this. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read the overall passage again that we've been in, um, and I'll begin in verse 1. But as for you, speak these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We find ourselves in the midst of thinking through what biblical discipleship is to look like in the local church. Paul has transitioned from detailing the lives and teaching of the false teachers in Crete to instructing Titus regarding what discipleship needed to to look like there in the churches on the island of Crete. And it is through these instructions to Titus that the church today has shown why discipleship is critical, how discipleship is to happen, and what discipleship is to look like. Like I said, it's been a while So let me remind you that several weeks ago, we first discussed in this passage the product of discipleship. Biblical discipleship produces faithful, godly, mature, stable, older men and women. Older men and women are to be characterized by lives dominated by self-control and seriousness about the things of God. When the Word of God is taught and lived out and infused into other people's lives, the end result is maturity. 
Christians becoming complete in Christ. That's what Paul, Paul's goal was, as he says at the end of Colossians chapter 1, that, that these people who I am ministering to may become complete in Christ. That's a picture of maturity. That's a picture of the product of discipleship. Discipled people are steady and consistent in their love for Christ and his people. Then, last time, as I said a few months ago, we were in the book of Titus, we began to look at the process of discipleship. The process can be summed up this way. Older, mature Christians are responsible to disciple younger Christians. The word is taught, it is explained, and it is applied. This is how God designed the church to function and to grow in maturity. And here's something that can't be missed. Discipleship in the church cannot be isolated from influence. It cannot be isolated from influence. Believers who have been discipled are those who have been both taught and influenced by other more mature Christians. Influence matters. And you, if you are in Christ, sitting here this morning, know that. You understand that influence matters. John Patton was a missionary to the new Brides Islands, which is the modern-day Vanuatu. At the time that Patton went to this place in the 1800s, many other missionaries had either been driven off the island or eaten by cannibals. In the biography about John, it says this, What was it that gave him the commitment and courage to brave this endeavor? In his autobiography, he gives the answer. It was the influence of his father. Growing up, as he saw the godly example of his father, he asked himself, He walked with God. Why may not I? His father's love and faith was evident as John left to attend seminary and become a city missionary. Patton remembered my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. He, his counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on the parting journey are as fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely flown now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair, then yellow but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted upon reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped, grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer and tears we embraced imparted. I ran off as fast as I could and when I was about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him standing with his head uncovered where I had left him. Waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too 
full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my directions for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and walking away head uncovered have often, often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind. The scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes And in all my Christian duties, that I might faithfully follow his shining example. This serves as an example of the type of influence older believers are to have on younger believers in the church in their discipleship relationship. In this case, it was his father who poured into him and prayed for him. And brought him up in maturity. In the case of all believers in the church, it needs to be those older believers taking younger believers by the hand and walking them through the course of life that they might grow up into maturity, into Christ. And currently in this text, we are unpacking the second of three vital components of biblical discipleship which provide for us the framework for being a faithful, healthy church. As I said, last time we studied the process specifically, and we we studied in the context of how women are to disciple one another in the church. In verse 4, it says that older women are instructed to encourage the younger women. The younger women include those women who are single, those women who are married without children, and those who are married with young children. And these young women are to be encouraged in two primary areas. As you see there in verse 4, it says, To love their husbands and to love their children. When it comes to womanhood in the Bible, being a godly wife and mother is championed as her primary obligation and responsibility. In fact, we can conclude from the teaching of the whole of Scripture on this Topic that the greatest fulfillment that women can experience in this life comes when they faithfully love and care for their husband and their children. It says older women are to teach what is good about these things and and to exemplify the attitudes that that reflect the type of love and affection being, being called for. This is the process of discipleship among women in the church. Well, this morning, I want to turn our attention to the process of men being discipled in the church. A healthy biblical church will be 
that because faithful, qualified men are at the helm and fulfilling their God-given leadership roles. However, this doesn't happen by accident or by wishful thinking. And having been a part of a number of churches in my lifetime, it does seem that certain Christians feel that way and think that way. That just because they're a church, that just because they meet together and, and they sit under the Word of God and they sing together, that, that automatically men are going to rise up and they're going to lead the church as, as God designed. But that's not the case. You see, if there are going to be faithful, godly men who lead the church as God designed... It is going to be because more mature, faithful, godly men have discipled the younger men. This is a process. Notice verse 6 of our text. Paul begins there saying, Likewise, likewise, or, or by the same process, older men are to disciple younger men. By the same process that that older women discipled younger women, older men are to disciple younger men. The younger men here are probably those who are between the ages of 20 and 30 years old. And Titus and other more mature men are to urge them to demonstrate godly characteristics. He says, likewise, urge the young men. To, to urge is to, to appeal to, to, to exhort. This is an imperative verb and it's in the present tense, meaning that, that this is commanded and this is to be the ongoing process in the life of the church. This is not a one and done process. This is not, this happens and all of a sudden it's just going to continue to happen. No, this, this is to, to, to be the process that happens in the life of the church. Notice the characteristics that are to be taught and and exemplified to younger men. First, Titus is to teach them to be sensible. You might recognize that word. This is the third time that this characteristic has has been brought up in this context, in verses 1 through 10. I think it's safe to say that being sensible is very important to God. Extremely important, vitally important, critically important. And it cannot be disconnected from Christian maturity. If a person is going to be the mature Christian that God has called them to be, they are going to be marked by being sensible people. This word was used throughout this passage to describe those who, who are mature in their faith, as we saw it in the process or the, the product of discipleship. And it was used as something to be taught to the younger women. And for the women, as we studied last time, it meant that younger women were to be taught to be self-controlled specifically in regard to their purity. Well, here, this word is also focused on self-control. Young men are to be prudent. They are to be wise. They are to be judicious. They are to be discreet. They are to have their they are to have control of their tongues and of their fleshly desires. And when you look at the heart of this word, to be sensible, 
I think the heart of this word is calling young men to refrain from being impulsive. To be impulsive is to to act on sudden desires or whims. It is to disregard giving something careful thought. It is to just react without thinking to circumstances that develop. Impulsive young men are those who who speak without thinking. They react to circumstances emotionally. They make decisions based upon feelings rather than using wisdom and prudence. They are marked by a lack of restraint in thought, speech, and action. And to be impulsive and a godly man, leader, doesn't mix. If a man is going to be the godly man that he is called to be, that he is instructed to be, that he is commanded to be, if a man is going to be the leader that he is made to be in his home, with his children, in the church, in the workforce, in the world at large, then he cannot be marked by being impulsive, by making decisions based on the whim of your feelings at the moment. And men, you guys are becoming more and more bombarded with the temptation to live impulsively. The allurements of of your flesh and this world are becoming more heightened so that the temptation to be impulsive is becoming greater. Your access and, and ability to live impulsively, feeding the desires of you of your flesh, living according to how you feel, is greater now than I believe it ever has been. And so now, starting today, more than ever, you must seek to live disciplined, focused lives that are structured by the priorities of Scripture. Your life is not to be marked by impulsive whims and feelings and making decisions based on those whims and feelings. You wonder how our country has gotten to the place where it's gotten. It's because we live in a country marked by leaders who are impulsive who are reacting to the other side of the aisle, doing things based on those instead of what is good for the the common good of the people of this land. You want to look at the church at large, churches across the U.S. who, who are struggling with leaders who are not men of character, who are unqualified to be in those positions, 
You can trace it back to other people in the church acting impulsively, saying, no, we've got to have some men in this role, so let's just throw some people into this role so that they can lead us. Look back at the nation of Israel. They looked around them. God told them, I will be your king. It was a true monarchy. It was a, th- it was a, a theomonarchy. I don't even think that's a word, but that's what it was. There's another word for that that's not coming to my mind. God was their king. And what did they do? They looked around and said, wait, all these other nations, they have kings. I want to be like them. Let's be like them. Let's get a king. Oh, we need a king. We need, we need a king who, who looks like their kings, who's, who's dominant like their kings in his physical appearance. And So they take on Saul, and then they have this massive problem throughout many years of their history of bad king after bad king who leads them into idolatry and eventually they are led away into captivity many of them are destroyed men when when paul tells titus and and i believe by extension the other godly mature men in the church, to urge, to encourage, to, to exhort, to, to compel the young men to be sensible. It's because it was absolutely necessary. It was necessary for the life of the church. It was necessary for those families who made up the church. It was necessary for the culture, as we'll look at next week, for, for, for the culture and, and the world at large around them to see that these men were sensible, that they were not impulsive, that they were careful. And so, young men, you must seek now to live disciplined, focused lives based on the priorities of scripture and and this is why then older men must take young younger men under their wing and show them what it means to live life with both prudence and self-control and they do this by explaining it to them and then by exemplifying it for them that's how this process works and being a part And part of being an example for for the younger men is older men using the mistakes that they made as younger men to highlight why wisdom and prudence are necessary and why being impulsive is dangerous. This is why it's so critical, men, that you find those guys who've lived a little bit more life than you have. Because inevitably they have been where you are. They have processed the decisions that you are having to process now. They are thinking through life the very way that you are thinking through life now. And some of those men whom God by his grace have have brought about to maturity, back when they were sitting where you're sitting, have made some pretty bad decisions. (laughs) Lived according to the impulses of their flesh. But now God has saved them and God has grown them and he has matured them and he has brought them to the church so that you can come under them. 
And so that they can tell you, let me give you some, some extra reasons why. That God says this is the way it is, and that's absolutely true. And let me now tell you, let me put some, some rubber on the road, if you will, for you. And say, this is why you don't want to make impulsive decisions. This is why you don't want to be known as an impulsive person. Because they've lived life. They understand the danger of it. They understand how important wisdom is. They understand why, why Solomon wrote that book of Proverbs to his sons. And said, if you're going to be king, you've got to, you've got to be wise. You've got to be wise. Older Mature men have wisdom that they either learned the easy way or the hard way that they can infuse into the lives of younger men. And Paul tells Titus this is critical. This is critical. Notice Titus was also instructed to show himself to be an example of good deeds. Why does Paul state that that way? Because... The false teachers were the exact opposite. This, this exhortation, this instruction from Paul to Titus was the opposite of what the false teachers were doing in Crete. They were anything but a godly example to the believers. Paul was saying, Titus, look at the, the culture around you. Look at the false teachers within the church around you. That is the exact opposite of what you want to be. You want to be different than that. Paul instructs Timothy in the same way in 1 Timothy 4.12 when he says, Let no one look down on you on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. You see, a key component to discipleship in the life of the church is the discipler's exemplary life. An exemplary life gives credibility to the message that they are teaching, to the instruction that they are giving, to the, to the implications that they are helping young men figure out. I mean, just think about it for a second. You're sitting there with a man who's, who's instructing you in the things of the Lord, who's teaching you the Bible, who's explaining to you what the Bible says it means to be a godly man, what that looks like. And you're, you're sitting there next to this man knowing all the while that this man isn't living this way at all. You know things, maybe he doesn't even know you know. You know things about his marriage that you don't ever want your marriage to look like that. Now, you're friends with his kids. And you know that, man, I don't ever want my kids to turn out like that. You see how that doesn't work? You see how, how that just goes against everything that's trying to be accomplished? Now, this is why Paul tells Timothy, listen, in all things, Titus rather, Titus, in all things, in every aspect of your life, you have to show yourself to be an example of good deeds. We are never to live like the world. We are always to look different than the world. 
This is why Paul spends so much time at the beginning of this letter and why we spend so much time spelling out the the character qualifications for leaders in the church. See, Titus was to be an example in how he lived day to day, and he was also to be an example in his speech. Young men need to be trained to speak in a way that, that honors God. And you see that as it says that, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Then he says, with with purity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech. This is part of the discipleship process. These three phrases, after he tells them to be be an example of, of good deeds, these three phrases after that are related to being an example in his speech. The first aspect of their speech that needed encouragement was their doctrine. It says, with purity in doctrine. Discipleship includes people becoming clear in their doctrine, becoming clear in knowing what they believe and why they believe it. Why is that critical? Because you can't grow in conformity to Christ if you're living according to the wrong stuff. If you're being taught wrongly about the character of Christ and about the authority of Christ and about the the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, well, then your life is not going to be conformed to the Christ of the Bible. And so Paul tells Titus, listen, as you exemplify good deeds to these people, you also need to exemplify what it means to to be pure in your doctrine. Titus was to have purity in his doctrine. That is to say that that he was to have integrity. His his doctrine that he taught and passed on to the younger men was to be without corruption. It had to have an enduring quality because it was true. The things that that Titus taught and then the way that he he conducted his life according to to those things in which he taught, that had to be true. This means that he had to be firm regarding what he believed and why he believed it. This is true for for everyone in the discipleship process within the church. You see, those who are discipling others must be clear regarding the doctrines of the faith in their own minds. And they must live those out. They must live out that truth in their own lives. Then they can pass it on to others. You see the steps that are necessary. You see why this is an ongoing process that that must continue on and on and on. The more that you learn and grow in your relationship with the Lord, according to His Word, the more that you will be accountable for to pass that on to other people. Because this is how it works. Doctrine that is taught and modeled in an unclear way produces at best weak disciples and at times false disciples in the church. You see, pure doctrine is a matter of first importance in in the discipleship process within the church. There's a lot of churches that claim that, that they're doing discipleship. And they're doing discipleship because they have these these for lack of a better term, these buddy systems, right? These mentor model systems, which, which are good, which I believe are biblical. 
But they believe just because there's, there's that life-on-life relationship that, that discipleship is happening in the church. And, and it very well could be in many ways. But there's not enough emphasis in many of these churches on the doctrine that's being taught. What are these young men and women being taught regarding the Word of God? Are they being taught to know the Christ of the Bible? To understand what Christ has done? To understand the implications that flow from his life and his death and his resurrection to all of life? Are they being taught to understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin? Are they being taught to understand those things? You see, true discipleship in the life of the church must have pure doctrine at its core. And that's why Paul says to Titus, you've got to exemplify this pure doctrine and what you teach and then the fact that your life then adds up to what you're saying. Because it is that truth. It is the truth of the word of God that permeates the soul, that permeates what Paul calls the inner man that then produces fruit and godliness and righteousness. And a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul tells Titus, listen. You've got to be an example with how you live and your good deeds. But you have got to be an example with your purity in doctrine. Because it's critical. It's crucial. Titus was not only to model speech that was pure in doctrine. He was also to exemplify speech that was dignified. You see that there. Verse 7, he was to train the younger men to be serious in their speech and in their overall approach to life. He was to teach these young men and model for these young men a type of speech that signified that he had grown up and that they were to grow up. They were to move beyond their childish ways, specifically here in their speech, and they were to become serious in the things that they spoke about and the things in which they lived for. This doesn't mean that young men aren't to enjoy life and be full of laughter and joy. Commanded over and over in the New Testament to rejoice in the Lord always. To be people who are full of joy. This is, this is how we walk out into a culture and stand out like a sore thumb, especially today. Everybody's angry. There's nobody out there happy. Just walk into your local grocery store and spend five minutes in there. Nobody's happy about anything. So you walking in being full of joy and full of life, that's a good thing. That's a helpful thing. That's a godly thing. And so it doesn't mean that young men aren't to enjoy life and be full of laughter and joy, but it does mean It does mean that the direction of their life is focused on the things of God and on the priorities which God has established in His Word. To be be dignified is to be focused in terms of your life as a whole. To be be focused on, on that which is eternal and that which matters, the things of God. And specifically here in terms of of Speech. That your speech is directed at what matters. It's directed 
to the priorities which God has established in his word. And for this to happen, young men must be discipled by older, more mature men in the faith. See, young men need to be challenged to, to get beyond themselves, to get beyond their own selfish agendas, and to pursue a life of, of discipline and dignity. They need to be trained in in functioning as a useful member of the church. It pains me to see families where I I see the same families over and over, and I, I I see the wife. I know they're married. I know their family a little bit. I'll see them on Sundays, occasionally on Wednesdays, and yet never see the husband. Where's he at? Why is he not here? Why is, why is the direction of his life not what God calls men's direction in life to be? Where's he at? I think we become used to that and we become okay with that. But there's too many men who aren't useful members of the local church. There's too many men who just show up, who sit down, who take in everything, who wander out the door and have nothing to do with serving and leading the church. Men, you are called to be godly leaders in your homes, in your families, and in the life of the church. Paul was instructing Titus to instruct these men to become dignified in their speech. You see, they needed to be trained in what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father. They needed to be trained regarding what it means to be a diligent, hard worker. Dignity is a mark of biblical maturity. And Titus was also to model, it says, being sound in speech. Sound in speech. Literally, he is to model whole speech. Now, the word for speech is the word used in verse 1 and a word that you're familiar with. You know the word logos or logos. It has several connotations in the New Testament, including referring to, to Scripture and referring to the incarnate Christ. In John 1, the Word became flesh. However, in Ephesians 4.29, it is used there to refer to, to utterance, to what comes out of one's mouth. That is what Titus is to model here. Speech that is, that is whole, that is healthy, that is edifying, that is helpful. That what comes out of your mouth must be these things. This instruction from Paul to Titus here is not specifically in reference to his pulpit ministry, but rather in his conversation in in day-to-day life. MacArthur comments on this, saying that young men need to become virtuous and consistent in their speech. This is a mark of maturity. Friends, how you speak is a huge deal. 
It's a huge deal. Unfortunately, untamed and undisciplined speech is one of those respectable sins that we as believers don't pay near enough attention to. Man, if you want to become mature and useful in the church, you must become disciplined This includes the timing that you choose to say things to others. That's a big deal. We may have something true to say. It may be completely true. But if you choose to say that at the wrong time to somebody, it is not edifying. It is not glorifying to God. It is not helpful and beneficial for that person. It may fill you with a great sense of pride is what it is, great sense of pride that you were able to say that truth, to speak your truth. I'm so tired of that phrase. But the reality is, you don't learn how to be sound in your speech in the sense that you don't learn the timing in which you are to say things to people. It's going to be more unhelpful than it is helpful. So it includes your vocabulary, it includes the timing that you choose to say things to others. And it also includes the tone in which you speak. Someday in heaven, I'm going to be a glorified man. I can't wait. I think one of the biggest things that I struggle with personally is the tone of speech that I have. And I see this. It's just becoming more and more aware. I'm just gaining more and more awareness of this in my life. Having a a godly wife... And children who are becoming perceptive to the things of God helps me to see this. But your tone matters. Do a lot of premarital counseling. That might shock you. All what's going on in this group. A lot of premarital counseling. And we get to a section always on communication. And we spend a, we spend a hot minute on talking about tone. Because tone matters. A quick telltale sign of an immature person in the faith is their undisciplined, reckless speech. They are flippant. They don't give a lot to what they are saying. They give a thought to what they are saying. There's a couple passages out of many that the Bible has that come to mind that instruct us regarding our speech. And I just want you to turn there for a second. Turn first of all to James 3. James 3. James uses a few metaphors in this text talking about our speech. If your Bible was printed by the same folks as as mine, the the beginning of chapter 3, the title says, The Tongue is a Fire. I think that's helpful. It says that if... There in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. First of all, it gives a warning that there shouldn't be many teachers because that's going to incur a stricter judgment. What what comes out of your mouth matters, James says. And then, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And then he says, look at the ships. Also, they are great and they are driven by strong winds and they are still directed by a very small 
rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Think of those metaphors for just a moment. I don't work with horses. Some of you work with horses. Ask Milena after this. She'll explain to you what the bit does and how all that works. I, I don't know. I just think there's a metal bar in this horse's mouth. I'd be so angry if I was that horse. But it's in there, and, and you just move that bad boy just a little bit, and that horse is just going to go the direction you need it to go. You, those enormous ships, that just, you just wonder how in the world do you stir those things. They have those, those rudders that, that are turned as you turn the wheels those things. It causes the ship to go in the direction you want. Tiny little parts. That bit is small. The rudder's small. What does it do? It directs the whole horse and it directs the whole ship. That's what James is saying about the tongue. <clears throat> Tiny. I mean, some of you probably have longer tongues than others. I don't know. Maybe we have a contest sometime. I saw this guy one time. He could touch the middle of his forehead. I thought I'm going to stay away from him. That's pretty weird. So, but, but it's small nonetheless in comparison. Right? Tongues are small. You can cause so much damage with that tongue. You can ruin relationships. Lifelong relationships. You can decimate a friendship in a matter of 10 minutes with your tongue. You, you can drag somebody's life down who's not there when you're using your tongue and drag them down through the mud and completely and totally ruin their reputation. That's why he says, the end of verse 5, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? You get these guys who go out there in the middle of California where there is no rain. There's a reason why that is. That place is going to fall off the United States here shortly and float out into the middle of nowhere. But, But no rain, dry as a bone, and you get those bozos that go out there and decide to to light a fire and have a little campfire, and all of a sudden they burn hundreds of thousands of acres? That's the point. That's what James is saying the tongue does. You don't watch your tongue. You don't keep it from lighting that match, so to speak. You're going to cause great damage with your mouth. We're warned about that. He gets to the end of that section... And he he says this, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who we have made in the likeness of God. And with the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Use your tongues wisely. Speak wisely. Be sound in your speech. The tongue can be extremely dangerous. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 29, a reference this just a moment ago. This is where we get this same word. Logos is here. Let no unwholesome logos proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need for the moment, so that we'll give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This whole section is about speech. 
This whole section is about how you are to talk. And he begins with the command that we have to gravitate to, the command that we have to hold fast to if we are going to be sound in speech. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. Notice notice how I said earlier, it matters the timing of the word, according to the need of the moment. Why? So that it will give grace to those who hear. It's the purpose of our speech. This this is the speech of of a redeemed person. And this is what Paul was telling Titus. Listen, you've got to exemplify this to these younger men. And he's telling this by implication to the younger men. Younger men, you have got to embrace the reality of being sound in speech. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And you know what happens if you don't? It's verse 30. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And who's the Holy Spirit? He's the one who has sealed you for the day of redemption. He is God who lives in you. <laughs> who has sealed you, he was keeping you until the day when you see Christ face to face. He is the guarantee that you are going to see Christ face to face. And God says, when you don't abide by what I just said in verse 29, when your speech isn't connected with that, you grieve the Spirit who has sealed you. Our speech is to be forgiving. It's not to be bitter. It's not to be wrathful. It's not to be full of anger or clamor. We're not to slander one another. All of that, along with all malice, Paul says, put that all away. Get that out of your system. Instead, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Have speech that is full of forgiveness. Why? Here's, here's where Paul brings down the hammer. The end of Ephesians 4. Because just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. Why do you have forgiving speech and not hateful speech? Because the Christ who we have offended infinitely has forgiven us everything. So there is not a single thing that a person does to us that is unforgivable. We could spend a long time talking about this. We're going to be done, but... It's really important how we talk. The question is this, does this does this kind of speech characterize you as men in this room? Is it pure in doctrine? Is it dignified? Is it sound? Is it wholesome? Is it healthy? Is it edifying? And for all of you for that matter, does this speech characterize you? I, I, I urge you to take great pains to learn self-controlled, disciplined, edifying speech. And it is a lifelong process. You're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. But let me encourage you to never jump off this ship. <laughs> Stay on course with continuing to grow in, how to, in your speech. Paul says... 
there in verse 8 that this sound, being sound in speech, he says, which is, which is to be beyond reproach. That is to say speech that cannot be condemned. Speech that, that cannot be considered blameworthy by opponents, he says. And you see that as the purpose there at the beginning with the word so that. So that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Remember the broader context of what Titus is dealing with in Crete. Opponents were seeking to discredit his ministry and the overall ministry of the church that was taking place. That's what was happening. And so Titus and fellow mature leaders that he had trained were to live exemplary lives, be characterized by doctrinally sound, dignified speech that was edifying and wholesome so that, Paul says, their opponents would be put to shame. A believer's holy life stands in the face of critical opposition, causing embarrassment and shame because the opponent's claim is false. Listen, the goal is to be mature to the point of living and speaking in such a way that those who oppose Christ and His people can't find anything bad to say about us that actually sticks. That's the goal. That's what Paul is telling Titus. You've got to train these guys so that that's the case for their lives. That's what he's telling us. That this is the kind of life you've got to have. You've got to be living in such a way that the way you live and the way you speak that there's nothing that anybody who hates Christ can say that actually is true. That's what it means to be above reproach. And if Titus didn't live above reproach, he would have a detrimental effect on both his leaders and the rest of the church. If mature men don't keep watch over their lives and their speech, their example will have a detrimental effect on the younger men who are dependent upon those men to be trained. And Paul was telling Titus that he was responsible to encourage the younger men to grow in being sensible and to follow his example of good deeds and godly speech because this is how young men are discipled in the church. This is the process. Older men training younger men. So men, if you haven't done partners, I think the first step of application for you is to sign up on the website and begin to have an older man pour in your life. There's my plug for partners, because that's what this is. The program we have in this church is this life-on-life discipleship that's based around pure doctrine, that is teaching younger men how to be godly, mature men. Take the bull by the horns. Seek out a man that you want your life to model. Invite him to lunch, and here's a thought. Pay for it. It's good. He'll probably end up paying for it, but at least offer. And then begin to find out how he has gotten to the place of spiritual maturity in his life. Seek that out. I want to know. I had to do that with guys. Man, my life is not headed in the direction I want it to be headed in. How do I figure out what this actually looks like? Well, I mean, I mean this guy. He, he, his marriage is great. 
His family life is great. He is plugged into this church. He's leading people. I'm going to go hang out with him for a while. That's what you got to do. Take the bull by the horns. And older men in this room intentionally seek out the younger men and invest in their lives. And, you know, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir because that's why you're in college ministry. It's worth it for the sake of Christ and his church. This is the process of discipleship that God has ordained. Lord willing, next time we'll finish this section by looking at the third component of biblical discipleship, which brings about adorning the doctrine of God in the church and in the world. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for our time today. I pray that this truth will very tangible for us to, to chew on, to process, to consider. Lord, that you will encourage our hearts with it in the areas in which we are striving to bring glory to Christ, that you will challenge us in areas where we need to become more devoted to those things which matter. Father, I pray for the men in this room. I pray that you would raise them up be a generation that seeks after you, that loves Christ first, that loves their families, that loves their church, that loves their people they work with, that you use as a beacon of light in this dark world to lead many people to Christ. And to one day then receive the reward for their efforts. And hear, well done, good and faithful servants. Father, you are the one who works. You are the one who produces the people you have ordained to be produced this way. Lord, we love you. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen.